There is a danger of storytelling as a means of communication in that it introduces a level of, of bias, is maybe the wrong word, but a, but a level of subjectivity into the process by which science gets out into the world. Welcome to Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science, as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Doug Lay. And I'm Ryan Watkins. What's more important in getting research cited? What you say, or how you say it? Today we're visited by Dr. Ryan Kelly, an assistant professor in the University of Washington School of Marine and Environmental Affairs. Ryan is an ecologist and a lawyer. His research concerns the interplay between geography, ecology, and genetics in marine species. In this episode, Kelly tells us that he and his colleagues wanted to take their research in a different direction than is typical in marine science, namely, what it is that gets research noticed. This episode is sponsored by We Share Science. When researchers are curious about what is happening in science, they go to We Share Science to explore video abstracts uploaded by other researchers. You can search their vast catalog of video abstracts to learn about the latest scientific findings, or you can share your research with the world. Whether your research is in progress or already published, at We Share Science, you can share your science and grow your impact. Explore the world's research at WeShareScience.org. Now, back to Parsing Science. Hey, my name is Ryan Kelly. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Washington, and I was a biology major uh, all the way through. You know, I was one of those people. Where I always wanted to be a marine biologist, and so and I became a marine biologist, um, which is always fun at cocktail parties. You know, you say, "Oh, I'm a marine biologist," and whoever you're talking to always says, "Oh, I wanted to be a marine biologist uh, when I was 10." <laughs> so maybe I'm one of those people that that never quite grew up. So uh, I have a I have a job where I get to do work on on two totally different sides of the spectrum uh, in terms of basic science and then and then applied science and how we make rules as a society about how we use the information we develop. So that to me that's a real treat and a real privilege, um, and it also allows me to design uh, my science, my bench science. Uh, Based upon how I um, about based upon questions in the real world uh, and how I think those maybe could or should be answered, uh, and vice versa, you know, thinking about how do we do um, legal research, how do we design policy that is more responsive to underlying data. So for most people, that's a that's a handoff of information where they work on one of those bits and hand it off to somebody else. And for me, I try and avoid that handoff and I, I try and integrate those two worlds. You know, the environmental policy people have a have a saying that uh, environmental management is people management. Uh, and and for me, you know, starting as a biologist and then going to law school, inevitably you you run into these issues where, uh, you know, maybe the pure pure scientist says, well, I just want to be left alone in my in my lab with my beakers and my, you know, in my case, I was doing chitin genetics and most people have never heard of a chitin. Uh, so how do you think about the broader impacts of that? Uh, that can be very challenging. 
but then you start thinking, well, okay, if I care about this organism or this ecosystem, I care about the things that influence it. And humans inevitably influence it. And similarly, when you start thinking along those lines, um, you have to ask yourself, well, okay, what makes humans work? Uh, how do humans make decisions? How do people relate to, how do you convince somebody of something? It wasn't that I had noticed that articles I cited were written in a more narrative way. It was that I, I came at it from first principles of saying, well, if people learn by narrative and people best communicate and best remember information when it's told in the form of a story, I wonder if that that concept from psychology and, and from literature and, and communications, if that concept applies even in the very dry <laughs> world of scientific writing. Uh, and, and we were surprised to learn that it did. Um, so that was, that was really cool. So I ended up reading this book. It's a popular book called um, Influence by Robert Cialdini, who is a, a professor at Arizona State. Um, and it's the, he calls it the, the subtitles, The Psychology of Persuasion. Uh, and so I, I became interested in that um, as a, just as a piece of work, as a popular piece of work. And in that book, I, I ran across the idea that you could quantify narrativity. You could quantify how narrative a piece of writing was. Annie Hilliard came to us um, as as most master students do. Uh, she walked in the door and said, "Okay, I need a project." Um, and and this was a project that I had kicking around in the back of my head, um, thinking, "Hey, wouldn't this be interesting to do?" Uh, and so that's what I suggested. And she then couldn't couldn't track down exactly, you know, what you know, whatever I had pulled out of that book. She said, yeah, I don't think that's really in that book, <laughs> and, which is quite possible, right? Professors do that all the time. They say, oh yeah, go look up that reference. And then that reference doesn't exist. We ran into the problem where, how do you measure, um, well, how do you measure influence, for example, of a, of a scientific paper or of anything? Uh, and so at least with the scientific literature and with, you know, with academic literature, citations is a um, is the, maybe the way of measuring the influence of of your work on the field and so the number of times you get cited is a is a pretty direct measure of your influence on the field this was a particularly targeted question it was does can we measure narrativity and does it predict citations so we said okay well how would we do this how would we quantify what it means to be narrative and so uh, she went Annie went through uh, different literatures uh, that deal with narrativeness and narrativity and uh, she ran across a, a bunch of different strains of literature that that handled when I say literature I mean you know academic writing uh, that handled this idea of what it means to be narrative and obviously um, literary studies is one of those disciplines right they care about what makes a story what makes narrative but also psychology uh, has spent a long time thinking about well how do how do people learn and it turns out people learn by telling stories and so these really different um, forms of academic writing weren't really speaking to each other but and he went through both of them and then pulled out um, common elements and that's how we arrived at the 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 six elements that we end up scoring as uh, sort of quantifiable bits of narrative narrativity uh, inevitably a narrative a, a story has to have some sort of arc uh, and so generally that involves first creating a setting um, 
it could be a setting within one sentence. You know, it could be I went to the beach. Uh, that that is a is an evocative sentence because it, you'd all of a sudden it's got a person in it, right? It's got me and it's got some action. So setting is one of those uh, not required elements for uh, for a narrative, but is you know, one of the very common elements. Uh, and then so similarly, narrative perspective. Generally, um, a narrative is going to be either in, well, it could be the first, second, or third person. Uh, but you know, for our case, we were interested in first versus third because uh, scientific literature, which is what we were measuring, is, is never written in the second person. So for us, it was uh, first or third person. Uh, so I versus he, she, or it. And then sensory language is going to be um, is going to be language that evokes some sort of um, some sort of physical sensation, uh, of, of, like I felt the sand uh, at, when I went to the beach. Right, that's an example that makes narrative real for people. It sort of fills in those details. Conjunctions are just like uh, Schoolhouse Rock conjunction junction. Um, it's going to be uh, things that link words that link uh, phrases together, like um, however, moreover. Connectivity is a little bit different because it's it has to do with cause and effect, uh, and so that when you have a narrative, you have a, a series of events that are linked together causally. It's not just um, a set of random happenings. That what makes a story is that they're connected. So connectivity is is phrases or words that are linking one idea to the next, not in the grammatical sense that conjunctions are, but rather in the um, in uh, in the narrative sense, I guess, right? In the way that you're creating a, a cause and effect relationship, and then finally, appeal to the reader is something that um, scientists are um, very divided about. Uh, but in general, with the narrative, there's a moral to the story, or there's some lesson to be learned. And the the equivalent of that in scientific writing is, okay, so what? Like, what should I do uh, given your results? And so is there a direct appeal to the reader uh, is how we tried to capture that. So that was our six elements. The other author on the paper, Terry Klinger, kept pushing back and saying, well, okay, can we distinguish between what's just good writing versus what's narrative writing? Uh, and at the end of the day, I'm not sure how much we ended up separating those ideas, um, or, or maybe they can't be completely separated from one another. But but regardless, um, expository writing is the opposite of that. It's like the dry, just the facts. So um, something like, the beach is near the ocean. The beach is where the ocean meets the shore. Um, it, it doesn't, there's, there's no sense of cause and effect. There's no arc. There's, it, is just, it is just a fact. Um, and so the very next sentence could be totally different. The mountain is further inland than the beach, generally, right? That it's not; those don't have to be connected in in any sort of um, any sort of cause and effect way. Whereas you, if I went to the beach, and then the, my next sentence is the mountain is far from the beach, that doesn't you know that doesn't make sense. I am a biologist and I am a lawyer. I am not a communications expert, right? And I neither am I a literary anything expert, right? Um, so this is an example of scientists getting really right to the edge of our, our comfort zones and saying, how do we learn something new here and try and put something into the world 
um, that's analytical uh, that that comes at this question of of what makes science writing effective. But but we, you know we we could have easily looked at that question and said, well, we're not communications professionals, so we're gonna we can't do that. Um, and maybe you know perhaps and perhaps that's a totally <laughs> reasonable uh, way to think about it, right? Uh, but the but it, it, instead we we said, well, we think that we could approach this with this mix of well deference, you know, given that communications is a is an entire field here at UW, we have an entire department of communications, and and most big universities do uh, and we're not in that department and so how do we you know pay respect to the the massive um, amount of knowledge that's out there on communications but then say okay but we're coming at it from a different way they say the the um, mother necessity is the mother invention right and that is surely true when you're working at the edges of of what you, where you know what you're doing, the edges, the edges of the known world to you. Uh, so we we ran into this problem. We said, okay, well, we think we have our um, some elements here that we could score scientific papers for. Well, like, do they have a setting or not? And are they using first person or third person? Sure, that all made sense. And then um, we had we realized we we're going to need to do this a lot of times. Our our statistical power analysis suggested we we were going to need to do it hundreds or thousands of times, depending on the strength of the signal that we were looking to pull out of the data. And so I sort of floated this idea that, okay, well, we could crowdsource it. Uh, so there are these online platforms like um, Crowdflower and Mechanical Turk. Uh, I had never used them before. Um, it may be something that people in the communications field um, use more of. I, actually, I think that's true for things like surveys um, and psychology. Um, people tend to use this more often, where you where you need to get a lot of data from real humans. Um, but you know, for us, this was a new experience. Uh, so we just, first of all, just used the abstracts of these scientific papers. We didn't use the whole paper because we couldn't ask people to read like a thirty-page scientific paper and then give us six bits of information about it um, when they weren't specialists. Even you couldn't do that to specialists, right? That's just mean. So, um, we, so we had them read the abstract, which is just you know the short bit at the beginning of the paper. It's usually a few hundred words. It was bite-sized. And it was, um, it's also available in a database form so that I could write code, download thousands of abstracts. That way we could, you know, we could make a data set, we could upload it to Crowdflower. And you pay people um, to, to do this, but you pay them not very much money uh, because it doesn't take them very long. And they can read through it and score, okay, did it have a setting or not? Did it have a narrative perspective of first person or third person? And so forth. So we could have seven different people read the same abstract and score it for the same criteria, and that way we could we could develop a distribution uh, of each of these uh, these narrative elements for every one of our abstracts. We said, okay, well, we probably should look within one discipline um, because you know it might be that chemistry and you know climate change science and ecology are written for totally different audiences in totally different journals, and maybe they play by different rules. So in order to minimize the noise there, we just looked at uh, papers that had climate change in the title or in the abstract, and that narrowed it down. And then also we looked at a at a particular um, stretch of years, uh, and so it was a few years ago uh, for a few year period. And so it was about uh, reducing the background noise to see if there really was a signal. So we thought, okay, great, we can measure citations, no problem. And we can download um, thousands of papers or thousands of abstracts of papers at least from publicly available databases, so no problem. But then in matching those up, it becomes um, 
it becomes a little bit of a challenge because the um, the databases that have all the the papers and the and the abstracts don't necessarily have counts of citations. So uh, we we try to use Google Scholar, but Google Scholar ha um, sort of overcounts citations often uh, or counts them in a in a more generous way than other sources. And Google Scholar is not open to the public in terms of downloading all of its data. So we couldn't we couldn't download. Um, a few thousand papers worth of citations because that's not how Google Scholar works. I tried to do this in a bunch of different ways. Um, I found some Python code and I, I'm not great with Python and so I'm trying to play around with that. It wasn't terribly helpful uh, or wasn't successful I should say. Um, but then I ended up writing some code to deal to try and trick Google's API uh, so I'd like to put a pause in between each of my queries right but Google is way smarter than I am so that didn't work <laughs> pretty pretty quickly. Didn't work, uh, so I, I just never found a great workaround. So um, we ended up having to use a, a proprietary um, service, Web of Science, that we use through the through the University of Washington Library, and you can download like five hundred at a time. So we, we you know we ran into these issues where we had to have workarounds to what I thought was going to be the the easiest part of the project was. You know, saying, well, how many times has each paper been cited? But that turned, turned out to be not trivial. This was not a funded project, so we sort of looked under the couch cushions and found um, the money to pay the respondents on Crowdflower. I think this ended up costing less than $1,500, maybe less than $1,000 for the whole thing. So that was, that was another good lesson, is that you can get a lot of data for not a lot of money. The process worked uh, really, really well um, after we did it once. So the first time we did it, it did not work well at all. We got data that was all over the map, um, and we, we thought, God, who is reading these things? Like, are we asking the wrong questions? Are we asking it wrong? And then um, I don't remember who, who it was. I think it was Annie who thought to look at where all these people were from. And it turned out that most of these people weren't native English speakers, or perhaps weren't English speakers at all, um, and were trying to make judgments and answer questions about like how many conjunctions were there you know got used in the abstract of these scientific papers so um so we couldn't use our first round data because um it was just too suspect so we we then limited um the countries of the crowdflower participants to countries uh, that were predominantly english speaking uh and then um then the data all of a sudden made sense so, <laughs> so that that was a good lesson uh, one of the great things about uh, crowdsourcing, one of, the, one of the things that I was sort of surprised by and uh, in a good way, was how quickly you can get data back. We were able to get thousands of responses within like 48 hours, you know, or within, <laughs> within a very limited amount of time. So uh, you could actually see data as the data is coming in. We found that narrativity did significantly correlate with, um, with citations, number of times that a paper was cited, um, but it, it didn't, it didn't, it wasn't like a huge signal. So it was, you know, it was surprising that we found any signal at all, uh, but it accounted for about 5% of the variance in citations. So what that means is, it means that you've got um, any number of reasons why some papers are highly cited and, and not highly cited. About 5% of that spread is explained by how narrative that paper is. So it's not that the entire signal of uh, whether you get cited or not is, do you, do you begin your 
abstract of your paper with it was a dark and stormy night. Uh, you know, if that was a guaranteed way of getting uh, 100 or 500 citations, everybody would do it. Um, but it, it does, it, this does play a role. One surprise was about narrative perspective. I really wanted the first person to be um, a, a better way of writing, you know, the first person writing to get more citations. Uh, but, it, it, but it doesn't, um, at least in our data set, it, it didn't. It was not a, a significant predictor of, of citations. And so that was one surprise to me where I, I, it just didn't go the way that I thought it would. And so that was a good lesson for me that, um, that my preferences aren't always uh, – aren't always statistically borne out. And so this is a this is a thing to be studied. This is not anything that I think we could have predicted 100% ahead of time. One of the nice things about an open source, open access journal, uh, this in this case, PLOS One, you can actually see how many people have looked at the paper and downloaded it. Uh, and the, the response, it, as of the other day, you know, it was like nearly 25,000 people have read a pointy-headed scholarly article uh, that that is that's that's really unusual, uh, or at least in my little corner of the academic universe, uh, this is this is a great success that we didn't necessarily expect to be. I've been really uh, surprised by the response to the article in uh, both in volume and in in uh, tone. It's been overwhelmingly positive. It's been overwhelming in general. The one like really negative response I got it was uh, it was like a um, climate denier blog. This is not a corner of the web that I spend a lot of time on, uh, but I, it came across my inbox that some uh, climate denier blog had had picked this up, and I thought it was a really interesting response. And the response was, um, "See, it's all about storytelling." That like climate change is all narrative and no data. And here's a paper that says um, storytelling is what matters. Um, and this person clearly hadn't read the whole paper, right? Because in the, the narrative explains about five percent of the variance in in uh, citations for climate change papers. So if it were if it were all about narrative, uh, that would be a hundred percent of the variance that you're explaining. It seems to have struck a nerve among scientists who are concerned with communication. Um, it's a lot like what this podcast is all about. Uh, and so there are a lot of folks that are not professional communicators or communications people, but they want to know more about science communication. And this seems to have spoken to those people because it's got data. I, I really think in a in a globalized world where not everyone has access to the you know proprietary journals that cost you know whatever tens to hundreds of dollars per article, uh, that's ridiculous. You know we're trying to share information and create information together, and you want people in the middle of nowhere who barely have internet access. They, you want them to be able to read your stuff and and learn from it and and contribute back, and we want to be able to learn from them. So to me, that's what open access is all about, and I I fully support that both for journals and and for the data. So I would love it if somebody would take um, our, our data set and do something more with it. As we get more data available, I think we do have to somehow become better at 
A, knowing that data is there, uh, and B, knowing, uh, thinking about questions to ask of existing data sets. Uh, and things like data.gov is a government website, and I'm not sure uh, where that stands at the moment with the new administration, but but at least in the Obama administration, the idea was put all the publicly accessible data in one place and people can use it, which is great, except that you don't know what's there and it's not, it's not hypothesis driven. So like, why would you go to data.gov like to just see, it's sort of putting the cart before the horse, like, or it's all cart, it's all cart and no horse, I guess. If, if your horse is your question, your research question, um, you, you now have lots of carts looking for horses. And that, I, I think we, that's the opposite of how we are taught science works, right? Science is supposed to work by, you have a question about the world and you go out and find information to answer your question. Writing for scientists often falls by the wayside because it's the last in a very long series of steps about uh, going from when you conceived the project to going through the project and getting the data and then analyzing the data a million times and then writing it up. So by the time you've written it up, you're sick of it. So for me, I try and focus on, I try and have a target audience in mind. I say, okay, who do I want to be reading this and what do I want them to take away from it? And, and this paper in particular, our findings suggest that uh, if I can write it, it more in the form of a story, then that would be a good thing for everybody involved. So for, for me and for the reader uh, and for the journal, that's just a win for everybody. If we want science to be more accessible and more fun and more interesting to read, um, we've got to write it in a way that's more fun and interesting. But our scientific infrastructure is a product of uh, 18th century and 19th century um, thinking, really, of, okay, um, I didn't do the experiment. The experiment was done. That no matter who did the experiment, it would have turned out the same. And so I'm always taking myself as the researcher out of the equation. And so we write our papers in the passive voice. Um, that's insane, right? We have 100 plus years of physics that tells us that that's insane. And you can't separate the observer from the observed. And let's be honest about that. Let's write it in a way that, that says, hey, I went to the beach. Not the beach was went to, but was gone to by me. I want to point out, I think there's a, there's a danger here that, that we rely on professional science and professional scientists to give us you know, relatively unbiased and unvarnished view of the universe. We have, we have subcontracted discovery to scientists and we, we depend on them to give us the facts uh, in a way that, that is unbiased to the maximal extent that that is possible. So there is a danger of storytelling as a means of communication in that it introduces a level of, of bias is maybe the wrong word, but a, but a level of subjectivity into the process by which science gets out into the world. By coincidence, I had dinner last night with a friend who's a high school teacher. He teaches uh, language arts and, and literature, and he's trying to get ninth graders to uh, you know, analyze narrative structure and so forth. And months ago when this paper came out, when the narratives paper came out, I mentioned it to him. Uh, and so last night at dinner, he says, hey, I put your narratives paper in, in my syllabus. Uh, this is for you know, ninth grade uh, students who are like trying, <laughs> trying to learn how to write. Uh, he said, yeah, I, I'm using it as an example of 
why you need to understand narrative structure, even if you don't care about uh, literature at all. He said, this is a practical application of humanities uh, that, that, that I can use. And he said, it's great for uh, just a parent night at the, at the high school. So I can point to this and say, hey, parents, this is why your kids need to understand narrative structure. This is why they take humanities classes. And I was blown away. That wasn't at all anything I'd thought about, but I, I thought, what a cool use of, of this paper. That was Dr. Ryan Kelly joining us on Parsing Science. His article with Annie Hillier and Terry Klinger was published by the Public Library of Science in the December 2016 edition of PLOS One. You'll find a link to their article on parsingscience.org, along with other materials that he discussed during the show. Next time on Parsing Science, we'll be visited by Dr. Scott Halpern of the University of Pennsylvania's Perelman School of Medicine. He'll talk with us about his research into the accuracy of doctors' and nurses' prognoses of critically ill patients after they're admitted into intensive care units. Many of us often refrain from providing prognostic judgments, which are really the cornerstone of of shared decision-making in the ICU, out of fear that we can't do it very well. We hope that you'll join us again.